This morning we are going to continue in our study of the book of John. And we are going to begin to look at Jesus' synagogue, that's a Jewish church basically, synagogue discourse in the section that Harry just read, chapter 6, 22 through 59 is the whole discourse. We're going to look at a smaller chunk, but that's the discourse. And we're going to begin to kind of dive into it this Sunday or today, right now at this moment. I got to give you a little context to kind of set the stage. I don't want to just go into this text. Uh, We need to be reminded because it's been a few weeks since we've been in it, uh, where we are at and what was actually playing out. But after feeding the 5,000, which was really probably more like 20,000 with women and children. Jesus did that. He performed that miracle. And, of course, after walking on water, because that took place after that, and and most of us have heard of that story of Jesus walking on water, Jesus then returns to Capernaum, the city where his kind of headquarters or his base was. It was a home that he stayed at there and that he did ministry out of. So he goes after doing the miracle of feeding all those people and after walking on water and rescuing his disciples from that wicked storm and all of that, he returns to Capernaum with his disciples and he enters a Jewish synagogue, which again is like a Jewish church back in those days. As was his custom, it was actually pretty normative for him to go into these synagogues and And why? He would go into him regularly to preach the gospel. What is the gospel? It's the good news that he had come to die for our sins and take our place and and give us life. People who had been fed by Jesus the day before, because this all transpired in a matter of just a day or two, the people who had been fed by Jesus, that large crowd, uh, they wanted more free food. Obviously, the Lord provides the best and... uh, and so these people had a great meal that, that evening, and the next day they, they want breakfast, lunch, and dinner, so to speak, and they want more food, and they basically enter boats and go out looking for Jesus. That's what happens on the next day. And these people sail to Capernaum because it is where they encountered Jesus before. That's where they went looking for Him. And when they enter the city, they, they find Jesus at the synagogue And when they entered, they were a bit surprised to see him there because they were wondering how he had gotten there so quickly. He had fed them that night before, and and there was some distance between where he had fed them, and then he went out on the water and did all that. And and they were just kind of mesmerized by how did you get here, and here you are preaching the gospel. How did you get from there to here, and how did you beat us? So they were kind of mystified by all of this. And Jesus, however, knew what they were actually looking for because he knows what's in men's hearts. I've said it time and time again, he is omniscient, which means he has all knowledge, and that's because he's God. And so he knows why they're there at the synagogue. He knows why they've come. He knows why they were seeking him. And he knows that they are not interested in him. He knows that they are not interested in in really hearing his message or uh, in the forgiveness and and mercy that he offered. Uh, He knows that they just wanted another bag lunch. And they basically ask him a question as they're mystified, and that's, how did you get here? I mean, when did you get here? And, And instead of answering their question, Jesus seizes the opportunity, as only Jesus can do. And he calls them out. He exposes their superficiality. See, some of these people had been following Jesus for a while now, over a year. And they were disciples, because that's what a follower of Jesus is called, a mathetes in Greek, or disciple. Uh, But the disciples that were following him, essentially, most of them were superficial. They were following him for temporal reasons. And he calls them out and exposes this. And, and basically, through this discourse, he lays out how what they actually need is spiritual nourishment, not another bag lunch, not more fish and pita bread. And, and he tells them that only I can provide it for you. I can give it to you. The Son of Man can give it to you. And really, if you 
study the whole discourse and just read through it, he, he really works to drive this point home that A, you're spiritually hungry, you don't realize it. B, only I can satisfy you spiritually. And, and that is like the, the primary point of the whole discourse. And to drive that point home, Jesus refers to himself as the bread of God in verse 33, the bread of life in verse 35, and the down toward the end of the discourse, the living bread, verse 51. And incredibly, each title reflects a unique truth. I'll kind of go over them a little bit as we still thread the needle here, but bread of God, that title applied to Jesus has to do with supply. It has to do with supply, or if you want to call it provision. In the Old Testament, the Father, you know, Father God, God the Father, supplied His people with what we call manna, or the bread of heaven. And they were wandering around out in the wilderness, and they needed food, and that's how He provided for them. And they ate the manna, and it sustained them physically. It kept them alive. It was the sustenance, the physical sustenance that kept them physically alive. In a similar way, the Father has supplied the bread of God, Jesus Christ. However, the bread of God is intended to meet our most important needs, because manna cannot meet a spiritual need. It can only fill your belly. And so, bread of God has to do with supply. It is the Father's supply of spiritual sustenance. Think of it like that, the bread of God, which is Jesus Christ. Bread of life is another unique title here, and it has to do with salvation. Okay, the first one's supply, the second one is salvation. Jesus is the only one, the only bread who can actually give us eternal life, John 10, 10. And that's illustrated throughout the whole Bible. If we partake of Him by grace through faith, because it's not about eating Jesus, that's just weird and sounds like cannibalism. It is cannibalism. The idea of taking in the bread has to do with, in scriptural terms, believing in Him by grace through faith. So if we partake of Him, if we take the bread, ingest the bread, how? By grace through faith, we will be forgiven of our sins, we will be made righteous, we will be justified before God. And in fact, God Himself justifies us. We will be adopted as sons and daughters. We will be sanctified. That means conformed to be like Jesus throughout our lifetime. And we will be glorified. In other words, we will be saved. If we do not partake of Him by grace through faith, we will die in our sins, John 8, 24, and suffer God's judgment and wrath, Revelation 20, 11 through 15. The Father, and this is so critical that we understand this, God the Father has provided no other bread, no other resource for our salvation, no other Savior but Jesus alone, Acts 4.12. So you've got bread of God, meaning supply, that's the Father's provision. You've got bread of life, which is Jesus Christ for our salvation. And then you have the last title that we see in the discourse, living bread. Living bread has to do with satisfaction. So it's three S's, supply, salvation, satisfaction. The fullness that that physical bread provides only lasts a few hours, right? In fact, I think it lasts a few minutes because bread is all carb and that wears off and you're dying to eat something else. It's almost like all Chinese food is made of French bread. As soon as you eat it, you're starving an hour later because it's so high in carb. But the fullness that physical food or the fullness that bread provides, it only lasts for a few hours, if that. It eventually wears off, and then we get hungry again. And if you're like Lily, you turn into a Tyrannosaurus. Right? Where's Lily at? That's why I got away with it. She gets hangry. So it eventually wears off. Physical food, the attribute, or the, the, uh, not the, the attribute, but the, the effect, it actually wears off, and we get hungry again. And in a parallel way, it is true that if we seek spiritual nourishment and satisfaction outside of Jesus, we will never satisfy our hunger. So in the same way that bread only provides temporarily in a physical sense, if, 
if we are not seeking Jesus and in Jesus, we will ultimately never be truly satisfied spiritually. And the spiritual literally is the most important aspect of us, and yet it's the most neglected and most rejected in our culture. People just don't believe that we have a spirit or anything and we're just physical and we came from ooze and all that. And so if we seek spiritual satisfaction outside of Jesus, we will get hungry again. We will never be satisfied the same effect that bread has on us. False religion can only produce false assurance. And if we don't know where we actually stand with God, we are never going to be satisfied spiritually and we're never going to be able to rest. Works righteousness, which is really the foundation of all false religion. That's where we're trying to earn our way with God. That mode of thinking and living and operating cannot create true spiritual satisfaction either. What it actually creates is pride when we excel and despair when we fail, doesn't it? It either turns you into a Pharisee who's a legalistic person that thinks he does everything well, or a shattered, despairing kind of person that that just can't move on, can't live. But the living bread, Jesus Christ, is different. When we partake of the living bread, when we believe in Jesus Christ by grace through faith, we become spiritually satisfied like never before. I know this for a fact in my own life. And, And this satisfaction that we sense and feel and live in and enjoy it, it can even increase and intensify when we seek to obey what God has commanded us to do. Love Him and love others. It can increase and intensify when we regularly engage in the means of grace, like communion and, and prayer and, most importantly, Scripture. When we read Scripture, study Scripture, listen to it, listen to sermons, those things. When we do that, engage in those things... Our satisfaction, spiritual satisfaction in Christ can increase because our knowledge of Him is increasing. And with the increasing, increasement of knowledge, the satisfaction can come along too, but it's important that we obey. And the, the opposite is, of course, true. If we do not obey what the Lord commands that we do, if we do not engage in the means of grace, if we're a once-a-year Christian who comes to church if there was such a thing. There are people that come to church once a year. If we're in that mode, then the opposite obviously occurs. Spiritual satisfaction will be non-existent, and for the believer that just rebels against God and doesn't do what he's supposed to do, it will be fleeting. We need to seek to be nourished by the living bread through the living word all the time, every week. And if you're like me, every day. Because one shot a week isn't enough. Scurvy comes back on Tuesday for me. I don't know about you. I need to be in the Word always, and I need to have my mind. It needs to be being changed by the Scripture because it has the power to do that. It's living Word, Hebrews 4.12. Jesus uses a similar analogy in chapter 4, back in John 4, In verse 10, he offered the woman at the well. You remember her? He offered her what? Living water. In verse 14, he told her that if she she took and and ingested in in a kind of a spiritual sense, if she took the living water, she would never be thirsty again. Obviously, he's talking about her spiritual life. If she believed in him, if she put her faith and trust in him instead of in herself or what she's doing in him, she would be satisfying by Jesus who is the living water. So we see a parallel there in chapter 4 to chapter 6. Chapter 4, it's living water that satisfies. In chapter 6, it's a spiritual hunger, not a thirst, a spiritual hunger that is satisfied by the living bread. You see the parallels? Pretty amazing how Jesus' mind works and how he presents the gospel. In the synagogue discourse, Jesus introduces the subject of spiritual hunger because his audience was entirely focused on their physical needs, their bellies, rather than on their spiritual needs, just like the woman at the well. She came to the well during the heat of the day, seeking water because she was thirsty, but Jesus knew what she really needed, and he offered to give her living water himself, salvation. 
The crowd here in this text came to the synagogue seeking more bread and fish, another meal. But Jesus knew what they really needed and he offered to give them the bread of God, the bread of life and the living bread, himself, salvation. There's the parallel between four and six. And this morning we're going to examine the first title, the bread of God, in verses 22 through 34. Yes. I'm going to give you... Five P's this morning. Five P's. Let's pray before we get to work, okay? You with me so far? You have an idea where we're at? Good. Father, we humble ourselves and come to you and ask that you do what only you can do, and that is unstop our ears, change our hearts, renew our minds. You do all of this through the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Holy Trinity. We pray that the Holy Spirit would be here with us and that He would be doing that grand, extraordinary, supernatural work of making us new. Especially those who do not yet know Jesus as their Savior. Save those whom need to be saved, Lord, through the Spirit and sanctify us the rest of us. Teach us about spiritual hunger this morning and about how only you can meet that need. Help us to realize, Father, that we have the need. Many of us do not realize it. Many of us don't understand that that the conundrum, the situation that we're in is because of that. And only you can make that known. And so help us this morning and may you get all the glory for everything that is said and done here today. We love you and pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's look at the first P. I'm calling it the pursuit. Verses 22 through 25, I'll read it. On the next day, okay, this is right after he did all the feeding and everything. On the next day, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had been only one boat there, And that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone away alone. 23, other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. That's the miracle. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boats and went to Capernaum seeking Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, here's that weird question they asked, Rabbi, when did you come here? They were baffled. Now, we must understand, as we begin our exposition, this crowd was a lot smaller than it was the day before. It was not fifteen to 20,000 men, women, and children because Jesus dismissed most of the people the night before. You can look at that in Matthew 14, 22. We're talking about probably 100 to 200 people at this point, maybe less, maybe a little bit more. So this is a much smaller crowd because the masses were dismissed and went away. When this smaller crowd came down to the beach where Jesus had fed all of them, these are the remaining people, the the residual. When they came down to the beach, they saw evidence which showed, maybe there were marks on the sand, I don't know. But they saw evidence that showed, that proved that only one boat had been there. And the night before, they had watched the disciples sail away. And they also watched Jesus. They watched them sail away. And then Jesus, not going with them, is still with the crowd. They watched Jesus slip away into the mountainside to pray. So obviously when they come down to the water's edge and they see that only one boat had been there and they don't see Jesus around anywhere, they're thinking, how did he leave? How did he get out of here? He didn't go with his disciples. There's been only one boat. We can't find him. They did not know that Jesus had actually walked out on the water and went out to the middle of the Sea of Galilee, which was really more like a large lake, and calmed a windstorm and basically rescued his disciples. They had no idea that he had done any of these things. While the crowd is there on the beach trying to figure out what happened and how it went down and where, how Jesus had gotten out of there, boats from Tiberias began to pull up to the beach. Apparently... News about Jesus' miracle of feeding the masses traveled pretty quickly. And it reached Tiberias, which was a, a city or a town or maybe even a village. 
wasn't very far from here. It was on the northwest shore of the Sea of Galilee. Maybe the news got there from some of the people that had been dismissed by Jesus. They walked all night, and early in the morning they told people, hey, something spectacular happened just up the road here. We don't know how it went down, but these boats show up, and the crowd on the beach sees the people in the boats, and they begin to talk with them, and they tell the people on the boats, well, Jesus isn't here. He's already departed. We have no idea how he got out of here, but he's not here. Maybe we can find him in Capernaum because we've seen him at Capernaum. We've heard him preach in Capernaum. We've seen the miracles he performed there. And the people on the boats, maybe just, uh, I don't know if there were a lot of people on each boat or just a sailor on each one, and these were just fishing boats. They're like 30-something feet long, so these aren't cruise ships. These people on the boat say, we'll hop aboard and we'll sail together over there and you can help us find him. And there you have it. The people that are on the shore begin to board the boats. They break into smaller groups and they get on these fishing boats and from Tiberias and they sail four or five miles away along the coastline to Capernaum. Proponents of the highly popular seeker-sensitive movement likely rejoice over the phrase seeking Jesus. Do you see that at the end of that verse? And people that believe in this seeker-sensitive movement thing that we have going on in the church today, and it's not very churchy, but they have this thing going on, and people who believe in that kind of mode of thinking and way of doing ministry, they, they truly believe that all sinners, all people, possess a fully functional, unhindered self-will, which gives them the ability to either seek Jesus or not. Ultimately, it's up to people whether they receive Jesus and get saved or not. They pit all of the responsibility and action and ability on people. That's what seeker-sensitive thinkers do. To them, salvation is not a matter of God's sovereignty. It's not a matter of the efficacious, effectual work of the Holy Spirit. That, That doesn't have anything to do with it. It's a matter of man's free will and choice. This is the prevailing ideology and way of thinking in the church today, unfortunately. It's up to you whether you get saved or not. God didn't really have anything to do with it. He's just made a provision. You better do something about it. They literally teach that all men can seek Jesus on their own, and they should seek Jesus. But the question here becomes, what was the crowd seeking? What were they looking for? What did they want from Jesus? Were they seeking Jesus for the gospel, for forgiveness, for cleansing, for salvation? No. They were seeking Jesus for more food. It's a big difference. The Bible teaches very clearly that unless God intervenes and regenerates men, they will never seek Jesus for anything more than a full stomach or some other temporal blessing. Ephesians 2, 1 through 5 tells us that God must first overcome our spiritual deadness and make us spiritually alive if we are to seek Jesus for His spiritual blessings, especially salvation. God must overcome the fact and reality that we are dead spiritually before we can incline ourselves to God Himself. He has to do something in us before we will make a move toward Him. So do men seek Jesus? Absolutely. Do they seek Him as Savior and for salvation? Not even close. Not without God's intervening supernatural grace and the work of regeneration through His Spirit. I pause there because that seeking Jesus will cause people to think, look, people seek Jesus. I told you we're in the right movement. Well, they were only trying to get bread They didn't care about his message. They didn't care about his forgiveness. Why? Because they weren't regenerated. When the crowd arrived at Capernaum, they entered the city and found Jesus at the synagogue where he normally preached the gospel. When they approached Jesus, they wondered, how did you get from Bethsaida Julius to this place so quickly and without a boat? That's what was going through their mind. They questioned him. When did you come here? Middle of the night? This morning, what? How did this happen? 
They didn't know that Jesus walked on water. They didn't know that Jesus calmed the wind. They didn't know that Jesus made, got into the disciples' boat and made the boat go from the middle of the sea to the shore in a blink of an eye, Matthew 14, 32, John 6, 21. They didn't know any of these things. That's how Jesus got from that point to point A to point B so quickly, because he went beyond the physical way of going. He walks on water, which is a miracle. He gets in a boat, fast forwards it. That's how he got there so quickly. That's why he was there, and that's why the crowd was going, what is going on here? So that's the, the first P. The first P is the pursuit. The people pursued Jesus. Number two, the perception, 26 through 27. Jesus answers them, right? They're now standing before him in the synagogue, and Jesus answers them after they ask the question, truly, truly. Okay, this is a double emphatic. It means I'm going to say something to you of the highest importance. Truly, truly appears four times in the synagogue discourse. Truly, truly, very important. Listen to me carefully is what he's saying. I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, not because they saw the miracles that he, that he performed, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. And then he says this in 27, which is just stellar. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. Jesus basically disregarded their question and stated the plain truth. None of these people here had come to Jesus for the sake of Jesus or for the blessed salvation that he preached about and offered. Not one in this crowd had come there for that purpose. Everyone was there for fish and bread. Now, I'm not talking about the disciples that were already with him or some of the true ones that were there, but this crowd that came, that's why they were there. They wanted food. And this means that there was no regeneration represented here. There were no changed hearts with these people. There was no true seeking, right? They just wanted the bread, physical bread, not the spiritual bread. For this to occur, for regeneration to occur, for, for hearts to be changed, for true seeking to take place, Jesus would have to first expose the people's sin and lay siege to their unbiblical works-based works understanding of salvation. That's what's happening here. Before the Spirit actually works in the life of a person, part of the gospel must be preached, and that part is you're a sinner and you need to repent. Something of that nature. The Spirit regenerates people and makes them new as the gospel is preached. And Jesus knows where they're at spiritually, and he begins by doing the first step, and that's really to call them out. They had a, a terrible view of salvation that they could earn their way with God. It's typical in Judaism. They were sinning in that they were not truly seeking Jesus for Jesus' sake, but for food, which can be a sin. This idea of calling out in, 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 that we see here, and even beginning at that point, it is just such a, a critical aspect of preaching the gospel. Sin must be identified and exposed. And I would say not with a hammer. Because whoever preaches against sinners or two sinners and, and strikes them with hammers needs to strike himself in the face because he's just as bad. Amen? If sin is left out, of presenting the gospel. Jesus had not called them out, but if sin is left out, what would people actually be getting saved from? You ever thought about that? If you leave sin out, if you leave spiritual death out in our true condition, what the heck are people getting saved from? Sadness? Well, I'll tell you, if you come to the Lord today, you won't be sad, brother. Last time I checked, sadness wasn't a sin. It's a condition. How about singleness? If you come to the Lord, He'll bring you that mate. Last time I... That, that's weird. That just sounded really weird. Some of the stuff that comes out is not from the Spirit. I've heard it. Is singleness a sin? No. The Apostle Paul called it a huge blessing. I did once too, and only once. No, I would, I would never make it as a single man. No, I need my wife, and my wife needs me. She's not even in here. Good, I can say more. 
Sadness? That's not a sin. Singleness? No. Suffering? Is it suffering? It doesn't necessarily... Suffering might not be a sin. I mean, you might be suffering because you've sinned, but suffering itself isn't necessarily sin. If you come to Jesus, you won't suffer anymore. That's what the prosperity preachers say. Last time I checked, suffering wasn't a sin. Somebody has cancer and they're suffering because of cancer and, and they're sinning because they, because they're suffering. No, 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 no. Those aren't sins. Those are things. They're real things, but they're not sins. The gospel is good news because it declares that Jesus can save us from sin and from the penalty of sin and from the judge who punishes and damns sinners. That's why the gospel is good news. Not because it can cure your sadness. Not because it can find the perfect mate for you, Fabio on a horse. Not because it can cure your suffering. Suffering produces perseverance, and perseverance produces maturity. I need to suffer to become like the Savior who suffered. I'm running out of wind. The gospel, let me repeat that statement because this is massive. It's not massive because I'm saying it's massive because it's what the Word of God declares. The gospel is good news because it declares that Jesus can save us from sin and from the penalty of sin and from God's wrath against sinners. If Jesus knew the crowd was unregenerate and only there to get a free lunch and only the Spirit could regenerate them, why did He bother even saying anything to them? They're all lost. They're not saved. Nothing's going to happen. Why did He bother to call them out? Why did He bother to do anything with them? Why did he begin with calling them out in sin when he, he knew they weren't saved or there was no potential for them to get saved unless he does some work? Why did he even bother with them? See, that's what people think, that if you believe that God is sovereign in salvation, then why even preach the gospel? Let me tell you why Jesus still opened his mouth and still proclaimed the gospel to them, even knowing their hearts and their attitudes, that they weren't interested in him. They just wanted free food. None of them were alive spiritually. They were all dead. Let me tell you why. Because Jesus knew how to preach the gospel. Jesus knew that sin must be addressed if people are to be regenerated and saved. Nobody gets saved unless they realize they're a sinner needing salvation. And nobody gets saved if they're sold a false message of your sadness can be cured. You're not going to get saved because you don't need to be rescued from your sadness. You need to be rescued from your sin. You are a sinner. I am a sinner. Maybe you don't feel like a sinner. Maybe you evaluate your life and you think you do good things. Believe me, the Word of God testifies we're all sinners and we need a Savior and our only Savior is Jesus. And I'll tell you what, it just fires me up. Can you tell I'm getting fired? I hope I don't have a coronary right now. If I do somebody, if there's a nurse in here, give me CPR. I don't want any other person doing it. And I don't really want a male nurse doing it either. You're going to die if I don't do it. Let me go. <laughs> this is what fires me up. And this is just getting more awkward. So much of today's preaching in churches is devoid of any mention of sin. Sin has become a bad word, an expletive. And so has repentance. Crosses have been taken down and removed at churches because they are offensive. Everybody wants to preach grace and everybody wants to focus on grace and, and everybody wants to swim in grace. What people fail to understand is that sin gives grace its value. Think about it. What is grace if there isn't sin? If we don't understand sin, our sin, we, were, we will literally never truly value grace. I think we should start a campaign here at RHC. I do. Make grace great again. I, I'm telling you, I'm going on Amazon. I'm going to find a blonde wig that looks like straw. I'm going to plop it on top of my head. I'm going to stand up and say, we're going to make grace really, really great again. Grace is going to be so much better at RHC. Grace will be huge. Not with an H. 
I'm joking. And I'll tell you what our strategy will be. It'll be really simple. How do you make grace great again? We talk about sin. Sin is why we need grace. Right? And only grace through Jesus can wipe away sin. Moving on. Jesus admonishes the crowd not to work for the food that perishes, but for the food that he endures to eternal life, which he can give to them. This is what he says. Did Jesus tell the crowd to work for their salvation? Some would like to think so, but heck no. That's not at all what he meant. I want you to think about the crowd and what they'd gone through to get a free lunch. Think about what they did. They searched the mountainside. We can't find Jesus. They searched the beach. We can't find Jesus. They boarded boats. They sailed across the sea. They searched Capernaum and found Jesus at the synagogue. Let me ask you a question. Would you go through all of that trouble for a pita stuffed with sardines? You would if you were really poor, wouldn't you? But I'll tell you what, I'm... I'm I, there probably isn't really a poor person in this room. Maybe there's some that, that don't make as much as others, but man, we live in America. Our poverty here is nothing compared to the Sudan or some other place. I am a millionaire here as opposed to someone in Kenya. And I'll tell you what, I will barely. I'm think, just think about this. I want to be real. You're going through all that trouble to get a little bit of fish and some pita bread, right? And these are sardines. Whenever I see a, cra- a can of those cracked open, I run. I won't, I will barely, honestly, I will barely leave the house to drive to Taco Bell. A free bean burrito, maybe a quesalupa. They keep making up these Mexican names for food. What on earth is a quesalupa? I guess it's a quesadilla that married a chalupa. I don't know. A free bean burrito or a quesalupa might cause me to reconsider driving down there, but I'm so stinking lazy and Taco Bell is far, I'm not going to do it. Right? These people, my point, these people went through a lot of trouble to get a little bit of bread and a little bit of fish. We don't want to discount the fact that most people were very poor then. But still, that's, they went through a lot to get that. And Jesus' point is very, very simple. I'll paraphrase it for you. This is, in effect, what he's saying to them. You put in all this work, all this effort to acquire a little bit of food for your stomachs which you're not even guaranteed to get, but you neglect your souls. Labor not for the food that perishes. Come to me, the Son of Man, and I will give you food that endures to eternal life. He's not telling them to work for anything. He's telling them, you're going through a lot of trouble for something that is helpful, but won't save you. Jesus even tells the crowd at the, at the end of verse 27 that he was sealed by God for the very purpose of giving eternal life to people that were in this crowd, to sinners, you and I. When a king sent an official document or decree of something of that nature to his people or to another kingdom, he would seal it with his own signet, usually worn on a ring or around a necklace. He would take wax and, and he would have, the wax would be hot and he would seal the letter with his signet. It would be his little mark that represented him and his kingdom. And that seal was a symbol of his authority. And that's what Jesus is pointing to here. And I love what J.C. Ryle said about this little part. He says, the expression, the idea of being sealed here for this purpose of saving sinners. He says, the expression applied to our Lord in this place certainly stands alone. But I think there can be little doubt as to its meaning. It signifies that in the eternal counsels of God, of eternal counsels of God the Father, He has sealed, commissioned, designated, and appointed the Son of Man, the incarnate Word, to be the giver of everlasting life to man. It is an office for which Jesus has been solemnly set apart by the Father. What Ryle has told us that before anything was ever created, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit came together in an eternal council meeting. And and Jesus at that point is designated and sealed for the very purpose of becoming the Lamb of God to remove our sin and to bring to us salvation. 
He was sealed for that purpose. Did you know that Jesus was born to die? He was, he, he was, he was literally, he came and, 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 and he leaves heaven and steps out of heaven. He becomes a baby in the womb of a virgin and, and grows up and lives his life all for the purpose of living a perfect life, acquiring the righteousness we can never acquire on our own, dies a dreadful, horrific death on the cross to pay for our sin debt. He's buried to settle our accounts and he's raised from the grave that we'd be justified. He was born to die. He was sealed for our salvation. He's telling these people, look, you're troubling yourself over a Big Mac. you got a big problem. You need me. I have been sent and sealed for your salvation. Come to me and I'll give you everlasting life. That's what he's saying. Don't come to me for another sandwich. Come to me for salvation. That is, in effect, what he's saying. So, number three, the problem, verse 28 through 29, then they said to him, here's how they respond. Then they said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. Okay, so the crowd totally misunderstood Jesus. They thought he meant work for their salvation. And guess what? They were elated. All right, now you're speaking our language. Jesus, give us something else we can do so that we can earn eternal life. That's exactly what's going through their mind. And that's the default uh, mode of every sinner. I've got to earn my way with God. I better do more good things than bad things. That's exactly what they do. They hear him say work for the, the, the right food and eternal life, the stuff that leads to eternal life, and they think, okay, give us a punch list and we'll execute it perfectly and then we can be saved. That's what's going through their head. And this was a first century Jewish mindset, and sadly it's the mindset today. Work for your salvation. Earn your way through obedience to the Mosaic law. That's the law of Moses. You know the Ten Commandments and the other ordinances. Or this one, God promises pardon to those who practice perfect piety. (laughs) Note to self, stay away from peas. You know, if I just do more, if I just do better, God's going to love me. God's going to accept me. Well, here in America, we have a, a name for this kind of false religion. It's therapeutic moralistic deism. You ever heard of that? Hmm? TMD? Here's the tenets. Number one, a God exists who created and ordered the world and watches over human life on earth. Most Americans believe that. Number two, God wants people to be good, nice, and fair to each other as taught in the Bible and by most world religions. Okay, pretty universal thing there. Number three, the the central goal of life is to be happy and feel good about oneself. Boy, is that America? Yes, it is. Number four, God does not need to be particularly involved in one's life except when God is needed to resolve a problem. He's the magic genie. Call on him when, you know, the bottom falls out. Number five, good people go to heaven when they die. There it is. That's American religion. That's moralistic, therapeutic deism. And you know what? Jesus demolishes the crowd's unbiblical theology, their understanding of salvation that they could earn their way. He annihilates their request. He destroys therapeutic, moralistic deism. He destroys every other form of false religion through one simple statement. The work of God is that you believe in Him whom He has sent. All religion is destroyed in one sentence, except for the religion that is good and pure, and that's to care for widows and orphans the book of James. And that's just an outcrop of being a believer. That's the fruit. In other words, it's not about what we do, but about who we believe in, namely Jesus. Eternal life does not come to us through effort and works or through being good, Ephesians 2.9. It comes to us through faith in the person and work of Jesus Christ, and faith is a gift of God's free grace, Ephesians 2.8. If we get this wrong, if we fail to understand 
And if we continue to live out in this, in this false understanding and ignorance, if we don't understand that it is a grace thing and a faith thing in Christ alone thing, if we don't understand that we can't earn our way, we got to believe, if we don't get that and stay in that mode, we're going to die in our sins and be judged. This is a, a massive error that Satan wants to keep us in. How does the crowd respond to Jesus' words here, this additional correction, the fourth P. And this is just where it gets insane. There is no limit or depth to how ignorant and foolish we can be as sinners. The proof, 30 through 31, so they said to him, here's their response, then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. What did they do here? They basically demanded that Jesus prove that he is worthy of their faith through another supernatural sign. Okay, Jesus, you're telling us that if we believe in you, we'll have it. Well, we have a challenge for you. In other words, they were trying to teach Jesus to jump through a hoop like a dog. And here's the point, if Jesus obliged them and performed another sign, they were basically saying, we'll believe in you. Now, I wonder if Jesus was thinking, I just performed a sign for you. I fed you and thousands of other people with five loaves and two fish. In fact, you are here as a result of that miracle and meal seeking to get more food. I don't know if that crossed Jesus' mind. It certainly crossed mine. The first thing that I said was, didn't he just perform a miracle for them? that literally blew everyone's mind and filled everyone's bellies? That wasn't enough? No. The truth is no sign would convince them. It wouldn't. He could perform endless miracles and it would not change any heart because only the Spirit can regenerate and make new. The truth is no sign would convince them, so they really weren't interested in Jesus proving himself. What they actually wanted is more food. <laughs> He steers them to the spiritual hunger. They try to steer Jesus back to their physical hunger. I'm telling you, my stomach's growling. I need fish and bread. I really don't care what you're saying. I'm reminded of what the Apostle Paul wrote about false disciples in Philippians 3.19. Keep in mind, Jesus was speaking to false disciples here at the synagogue in verse 66. You see that because many left. Paul said this, of false disciples, those who are faking it, superficial, following Jesus for the wrong reason, their end is, their, their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. And they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But I'll tell you what, it's more than this. It's more than them just challenging Jesus to perform another miracle. The crowd would not be satisfied with Jesus' performance unless he took things to a higher level. We want you to go all the way to the top, Jesus. Not just about doing another thing. It's about doing something really spectacular. This is why they brought up the manna in the wilderness in verse 31. They wanted Jesus to outdo Moses. Okay, you got to know who Moses was to Jewish people, still is today. He's their hero. He's their most cherished leader by far. Some Jews back then and probably today even worshipped Moses. Or, bare minimum, they worshipped the law that came through him, that God issued through him. During Israel's time in the wilderness, about 40 years, God fed his people with manna six days a week. We don't even know what manna is. In fact, in Hebrew, manna translates, what is it? Isn't that funny? We got manna, what is it? That's what we'll name it. The chemical composition of manna is not even discussed in Scripture. It's what is it? Exodus 16.31 tells us a little bit about what it is. It was white. We know the color of it on the outside. And that it tasted like wafers with honey. So it was like a really cool cookie or a type of bread. But we're not really sure what Manna was, but we do know, we do know that God provided it for His people and nourished them for 40 years with it. And here's the deal. Exodus 12, 37 tells us that 600,000 men, not including women and children, left Egypt during the Exodus. So how many people did God feed with manna for all those years in the wilderness? Probably about 2 million. That's a lot of people. The crowd at the synagogue 
attributed this, they credited this incredible miracle to Moses rather than to God. Verse 32, we see the correction. And here's what they did right here. Here's the point. They challenged Jesus to outdo Moses by feeding not only them, but all the Jews in Jerusalem at that moment, about 4 million because of the Passover, verse 4. That's about how many Jews came into the city total. There's about 100, 150,000 that lived there normally, but millions came in from all over. The diaspora Jews, Jews came from all over the region during that main feast, and the city was chock full of Jewish people, about 4 million. So what are they, in a sense, telling, or in effect, telling Jesus? Beat Moses by feeding 4 million instead of 2 million, and we'll believe in you. That's what they're saying to Jesus. How did Jesus respond to the challenge? You know he could do it. How did he respond? Look at the last P, the provision, verse 32 through 34. Jesus then said to them, truly, truly, really important, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God, there it is, the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Two things Jesus does here, and we're getting close to wrapping it up. First, Jesus exposes their idolatry. He tells them that, look, guys, Moses didn't give you the manna. The Father did. Quit giving him the credit for everything. He was just a vessel that God worked through. If it hadn't been Moses, it would have been Aaron. If it hadn't been Aaron, it would have been somebody else. They think, well, Moses fed us all that. No, 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 no. Hold on a second. Hold on. No, no. Save Mart does not feed you. God feeds you through Save Mart. Moses does not feed you. God feeds you through Moses. You don't get your paycheck from an employer. You get it from God, but it comes through the employer. You understand how it works? God provides for everyone. He causes the rain to fall on the wicked and the righteous. He supplies everyone. His common grace is everywhere. He tells them, in effect, man, you got it wrong. It didn't come from Moses. It came from God. Second, He tells them that God has provided something far better. That He has provided the true bread from heaven, the bread of God. And Jesus is saying, it's me. The parallel is this. Here's your parallel between Jesus' teaching and the manna of the Old Testament. The Father sent manna, the bread of heaven, from heaven to give physical life to His people during the exodus. The Father sent Jesus, the bread of God, from heaven to give spiritual life to the world, people from every tribe and tongue. You see the parallel? That's Jesus' point. And I'll tell you what, bread of God could probably be rendered into English, bread that is God, because the title denotes deity. Bottom line, Jesus is the better manna because He is the bread of God. He is God, and only He can give us spiritual life. How does the crowd respond this time? Well, I think they finally got it. Look at what they said. Sir, give us this bread always. Wow, that's great, isn't it? Did they mean it? No. No. Why? Because they thought Jesus was referring to a new kind of manna. Uh, a supermana. Are you Superman fans? A supermana that could satisfy their hunger forever and ever and ever. We'll never have to eat again. Who made the same mistake back in chapter 4 with the living water? The Samaritan woman thought Jesus, when he was talking about living water, was just talking about a super water that could satisfy her physical thirst forever. That's not what he meant. These people were acting just like her. Give us that really, really, really good food. That's all they wanted. That's all they wanted. They did not understand Him. This is the reason why we have Him presenting Himself as other forms of bread from heaven to nourish people, satisfy them spiritually. That's why we have the rest of the discourse, because they still didn't understand it. And at the end of the discourse, guess what? They still didn't understand it. They left. Next Sunday, Lord willing, we will look at the second part of Jesus' synagogue discourse, the bread of life. Closing. It's kind of a weird way to end, huh? Like, oh, that stinks. They don't understand. They don't get it. How sad. Yeah, how sad. 
but I'm not going to really end on that. I'm going to keep this short and sweet. i got two things for you as we just close out. This is what I want you to think about. Today, tomorrow, this week, first, and I think this is the driving point of the entire discourse, first, the Father has graciously provided the bread of God, Jesus Christ, for our salvation. That's what I've been saying since I started. That's what Jesus was saying since He started. And my question to you is this. Have you partaken of Him by grace through faith? I don't want you to answer me. It's, it's rhetorical, but I want you to ponder and I want you to think about that. Do you believe in Jesus Christ for your salvation. And I'll add to it, does your life look like you believe? Because there are countless people out that say that I believe and they live exactly as they did before they even made that testimony. There's no change. Because when we say it, there's change in it. We're a different person. We say that. We say, yes, I believe, and we look different when we say it. I'm just telling you this morning, this is God's provision, right? This is God's supply, the first S. Jesus, the bread of God, is His supply. His supply. Have you partaken of Jesus by grace through faith? Have you come to Him? Have you surrendered? Have you put your faith and trust in Him alone? Have you relinquished your self-effort and ditched your false religion and said, it's all about Jesus? Have you made that choice, that commitment? And if you have, I'll tell you what, you've been regenerated because that's the only way you could do it. And I want to say this, only Jesus can save you because He alone is God's supply. Only Jesus can satisfy your deepest needs, needs that maybe you detect but you don't know what's going on, and those are your spiritual needs, and only Jesus can satisfy those spiritual needs. Only He can meet the demands of your soul. Sex won't do it, booze won't do it, money won't do it, power won't do it, Cadillac Escalades with spinners won't do it, nothing will do it. I've tried everything. Nothing worked for 30 years. Hallelujah! Still empty. Jesus, full, satisfied, purpose, security, love, forgiveness, mercy, fellowship with God's people. There's no other bread. The store is full of bread, but it'll never fill you spiritually. If you have not yet partaken of Jesus Christ by grace through faith, I bid you to do it now. I say pray to Him. Ask Him for mercy. Confess your sins to Him. He can handle them. Believe me, He died on the cross to pay for them. They all went on Him. He can totally handle it. You're not going to embarrass Him. You're not going to embarrass yourself. Confess your sins to Him freely. He can handle it. He's our great high priest. He knows what to do. Confess your sins to Him and put your faith and trust in Him alone for your salvation. That old J.C. Ryle quote that I love, the ear of the Lord Jesus is ever open to the cry of all who need mercy and grace. Plead to Him for mercy and He'll give it to you in abundance. He'll shower you with grace. He will renew you, make you a new person and you will begin to grow in Him and grow in this church. Give yourself to Him. Don't be like the crowd. Second, are you seeking Jesus? And I guess this would be more targeted toward believers. Are you seeking Jesus? Because we see people seeking Jesus in the text, don't we? And here's my question to you. If you are seeking Jesus, what are you seeking Him for? Is it because you need something from Him? More bread? More fish? Or some other temporal blessing? Let me just say, I want you to under, don't misunderstand me here. The Lord wants us to petition Him. He wants us to make our needs known to Him. But, but I know this from personal experience as a Christian. I can get into that mode and I stay in that mode and I don't do anything else but keep asking Him for things. And I'll tell you what, when I read this quote from Augustine this week, I got devastated. He said, how seldom is Jesus sought for the sake of Jesus? If our relationship with Jesus consists of an endless barrage of requests and very little doxology, what is doxology? Praise, adoration. I don't think we are honoring our end of the deal. 
Jesus is not our magic genie. He longs to hear from us and loves to meet our needs, physical, spiritual, whatever. But he is not a genie in a lamp that we can keep rubbing on. Or I'll tell you what, some of us are just right now at this very moment in our lives, we are attempting to kick against the goads. We are fighting the will of God because we keep asking him to take us out of a situation that he has ordained for our training and goodness. I say begin to pray differently. Praise Jesus more and petition Him less. In fact, use the ACTS prayer model, A-C-T-S. It's really good because it's super, super balanced. You begin with adoration, just proclaiming how wonderful and awesome God is. Then you go to confession, confessing your sins. Then thanksgiving, thanking Him for all the blessings and everything else. And then supplication. There's your request. Balance it out. Let's not be me monsters in our prayers. That's the application. Jesus is the only bread. If you don't have him, come to his table and eat and be saved. For the rest of us, let's change the way we come to the Lord. Let's start adoring and praising and thanking more than petitioning. He still wants to hear our requests, but let's put in some time in the other ways. Amen? Amen?